0: rod of all topics, which should never be preached on apparently, I touched on yoga pants. Do you remember that? Okay, now, I love all of you, and we've all talked about it and had time to digest. I want to say this to you in love. I didn't actually say anything critical about yoga pants. If you'll go back and listen to the sermon... I mentioned that Shanti was at a Bible study in which ladies were gathered around talking about proper attire and what constituted modest attire and the topic of yoga pants was brought up. And from there, I just went on to the need for ladies to talk and discuss about what is a proper attire. I never actually said anything about yoga pants. Remember? Remember? (laughs) I've listened to this sermon audio twice since then. And I know what was said and what was not said. What was said was not what several of you heard. Okay. And I had a lot of really godly women come to me in the weeks that followed and say, you know, here's here's a suggestion for how we might do this better in our church. And uh, and I thought they were great suggestions. I really did. I absolutely. I, I had a lot of feedback, some emails. Uh, people came and met with me, and I thought it was really, really good, the feedback and the suggestions that were given. All of that actually contributed to my, just as I, as I was praying before the Lord and trying to humble myself before the Lord, and I was saying, God, what is it that you are trying to say to us? And one of the things that has become just so apparent to me as a, as a pastor within a church is that we have a deep, deep need in this church, and every church has this need, for godly women who can serve as role models to the other women in our church. Pastors and deacons are in deep, deep need of being assisted and helped in their ministry by ladies who are of high character, who are of outstanding reputation, who in fact meet the qualifications that we see put upon elders and deacons. And at that time in November, as we were working our way through this passage, I began to pray and say, God, show me from your word what it is that you're saying to us as a church and how it is that as a church we should structure ourselves in order to meet the needs of every person present. In talking about it a couple of weeks ago with our deacon board, the question was raised, you know, does everybody here, can everybody here think of a situation in which you are called upon either as a deacon or a pastor to go and speak or address something with another lady and you wished you had a godly lady who went with you. Or, let's be really honest, you just sort of handed it off to your wife and said, you go take care of this and you let your wife go and deal with the issue. And there wasn't a man there who denied that that had happened in their life. We recognize as leaders within this church that we can't fulfill and carry out the ministry to the whole body of this church without leaning upon some of the ladies who are among us this morning. You'll recall from that sermon that I preached back in November on that particular passage, I referenced an article in Christianity Today. It was from the November Uh, edition of Christianity Today, the title of the article was The Bigger Story Behind Jen Hatmaker by a a lady by the name of Kate Shelnut. She wrote, and she begins her article this way, she said, if you had to ask the question, who's Jen Hatmaker then it's probably time for you to be more directly invested in the spiritual, uh, spiritually nurturing the other half of your church. As a pastor reading this I put it down and I said, who's Jen Hatmaker? And I was convicted of the fact that, you know, I don't really know who any of these, uh, these popular evangelical Christian ministry, female Christian ministry leaders are. I don't really know them very well. I don't really follow them very well. And it occurred to me as I was reading this article that if you're a lady in this church and you're looking for spiritual guidance and teaching uh, and direction that is tailored uniquely to you as a woman, you might have to look outside of this church to find what you're looking for. And that was the point of the article. Um, She goes on to say, uh, Kate Sheldon in this article, the most influential woman's leader at your church may be someone who has never, ever stepped inside its sanctuary. And I know from the reading of God's word that that is not good. It's not healthy for us as a church. And so as I prayed, and I said, Lord, what is your solution to this this dilemma? How do we minister to our ladies? do we bring encouragement, and how do we bring teaching, and how do we set before them a positive example? The more I prayed and asked this question, the more my focus and my gaze was drawn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and specifically verse 11. I'm not going to jump into the middle of the passage. We're going to start way back in verse 8, but I'm going to walk you through this. It says, deacons, verse 8, deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if... They prove themselves blameless. And in that introductory paragraph, we see a lot of overlap between elders or overseers and the deacons. We see in that particular paragraph that some of the qualifications that are put on deacons are the exact same character qualifications that are put on elders, with one exception. The elders, the overseers of the church, are required to have the ability to teach, whereas the deacons are not required to have that ability. Then we begin verse 11. And the ESV translates it this way. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, I want you to take verse 11, and I want you to go back to verse 8, and I want you to notice just a couple of things. As, As the Apostle Paul is writing this all out, he says deacons must be dignified, okay? Let's put that up on the board. Dignified. Qualification number one, you have to be dignified. Now look at verse 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified. Same qualification as the deacons. The wives must be dignified. The next qualification here is they must not be slanderers. We'll look back at verse 8. It says double-tongued. Deacons not double-tongued. Deacons dignified. Their wives dignified, not slanderers. That is, they have to be in control of their tongue. It goes on to say... They are to be sober-minded and faithful in all things. Well, you go back and you look at uh, the deacons. It says they're not to be addicted to much wine. They're not to be greedy for dishonest gain. And then verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So where it says of the deacons' wives in verse 11 that they must be sober-minded and faithful in all things, we see of the deacons that they're not to be addicted to much wine, and they must hold the faith with a clear conscience. Although this is not an exact repetition, we see it's almost the exact same thought. So we have here in verse 11 regarding deacon's wives, as it's translated, character qualifications that are identical to those four deacons. Now, here is the problem with this verse. Now, just walk with me through this. Most of your translations, if not all of your translations, are going to have a little footnote. Mine does here, the ESV, where verse 11 is translated... Their wives, there's a little footnote, and it says also could be translated, the women likewise must. The Greek word here that the ESV is translating in the paragraph of the text, wives, the Greek word is gune. This word can mean two things. It can absolutely mean wife, but in its more basic sense, it just means woman. It's what we would call in the English language a hominid. Now, I say homonym, and some of you are starting, you know, you do the up and to the right. You're thinking, you're like, I've heard that word before when I was in elementary school. What does that word mean? I can't remember. Let me refresh your memory. In the English language, we have these words called homonyms. A homonym is a word that is spelled the exact same way, but it can mean various things. depending. And you, you understand the, the meaning of the word from the context in which it is used. For example, when I say the word crane, what do you think of? Most of the men in this room are going to think of a job site, a construction site, in which you have a large a large piece of machinery that is used to hoist you know, something up to a great height, a crane, okay But some of the ladies I heard calling out a different answer entirely. They're thinking of a bird. That is a bird. And here's the thing. Whether you're thinking of construction site or whether you're thinking of bird, the word is spelled the exact same way. It's pronounced the exact same way. And if I were to just say to Ukraine the men on one side are like, oh, he's thinking of construction site, whereas the women on the other side, immediately, they're thinking of a bird, right? How would you know my meaning? Well, if I said something along the lines of, they had to use the crane to lift that, up, that object, then all of you in this room would know, okay, he's talking about a construction tool. But if I said, um, that bird over there, Chloe, that bird is a crane, well, then you'd know I was talking about a bird. The context makes it clear what I'm referring to. So, In this particular context, and and we have many such words, I'll give you an an example so you don't think this is just some sort of random on the fringes of the English language issue that I pointed to. It's actually quite prolific. I'll give you a couple of examples. Date, her favorite fruit to eat is a date, spelled D-A-T-E. He took her out for a good time on the town. They went on a date, okay? Uh, Engaged, that couple, they love each other so much they got engaged On March the 7th, the students at the high school were very engaged in the teacher's presentation. You're like, ha, ha, that's never going to (laughs) happen. That is a correct use of the word. That is a correct use of the word. Foil, F-O-I-L. Please wrap the sandwich in foil. They learned about the role of a dramatic foil in English class. Same spelling, same pronunciation. Um, Leaves, the children love to play in the Leaves or you might use it this way they do not like when their father leaves for work same spelling same pronunciation radically different meanings okay so there and I could go on I've got a couple more but you get the idea this is actually something that's quite common in the English language and the problem is when we come here to this greek text the reason why you have a little footnote in your bible suggesting an alternative translation is because this greek word gune it is the same way. It is the same way in Greek. It's a homonym. It is translatable to wife. It is, in its most basic form, translatable to woman. It can mean one or the other, and you hear the word gune in Greek, you have to decide whether it is speaking of a wife or a woman based on the context, the way it is used in the sentence. In this particular passage, all of chapter 3, we have some suggestions to go off of here. For example, if you look back at overseers, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, it, it makes this statement. Um, in verse 2, the, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one gune. Okay? Now, gune can be wife, or it can be woman, but because it says that the overseer must be the husband of one gune, we translate it wife. It's very, very clear. We're talking about the qualifications of an overseer or an elder. They've got to be married. They can only be married to one woman, one wife. So we would understand that to be wife there. You jump a little bit further down in uh, chapter 3, verse 12, talking again about deacons. It says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Again, the word there is gune. So the passage right before, as well as the verse right after, mention the fact that... Whether you're a deacon or whether you're an elder, you have to be married to one gune. Not that you have to be married, but you can't be married to more than one gune, if I could put it that way. But verse 11, you look at that and you say, yeah, you see there's a possessive pronoun there. In verse 11, it says, their wives, right? That's what the ESV reads. But here's the problem that possessive pronoun there, it's not there. In the Greek language, there is no possessive pronoun suggesting that these gunes actually belong to a man. There's another textual clue here that I want to draw your attention to. It says in verse 8, deacons likewise. In the Greek, it's diakonos hutos, deacons Likewise, in the same way as the elders, it's a reference to the preceding paragraph, but the other way that Paul uses this term likewise is to set off uh, a slightly different idea that he's going to talk about. Jump down to verse 11. Gune, hutos, women, likewise. So let's just take this at its bare bones reading for a moment and let us just assume for a moment that the alternative reading might be the best reading. And let's read this passage again from start to finish. Go back to verse 8 with me. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience Then and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Likewise, hutos, gune. Likewise, the women, they must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, that seems to suggest that there could be a third category of leadership within the church. Perhaps it's possible that we're looking for women within the context of deacons who help serve the church. Can we be certain that this is the interpretation the question is posed if it was Paul's intention under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to create a third category of leadership such as a deaconess a female deacon couldn't he have just said female deaconess why did he say woman and not deaconess that's a great question That would have made it really clear, wouldn't it? Really clear. Paul doesn't do that. To try to understand this passage and whether or not there is the possibility of female deacons or deaconesses, we're going to have to look at all of these references of the Greek word, two of them here, diakonos, which is the noun meaning deacon, or the verb diakoneo, Now, because of time, for the sake of time, I actually can't go through every single use of the word dak and ne'o in the scriptures. But what I think would be helpful for us as a church as we look at this verse is just to step back for a second and say what other references do we have? And I'm not gonna take you through the scriptures in the chronological order in which these events happened. What I wanna do is I wanna take you through the scriptures in chronological order of their writing, okay? Okay? So the first passage I want you to go to is Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Let me tell you a little bit about the Apostle Paul. He has conducted several major missionary journeys. He is presently, as he is writing the letter to the Romans, to the church in Rome, he is in Corinth. For those of you who are unfamiliar, Corinth sits on a narrow isthmus of land. That's a narrow strip of land on the Macedonian Peninsula. It is on the western side of this peninsula. And on the eastern side of this peninsula, the, the sort of the twin city, the paired city with Corinth, is this other city called Cancrea. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Romans from Corinth with obviously a close sister church nearby, in the nearby port town of Cancrea. The dating of this writing, of this letter, is somewhere around 56-57 AD. Some of you are looking at me, you're like, well, what, 1956, 1856? No, it's the very first 56 or 57 AD. So the first 56, we've had 20 centuries since then, the very first 56, 57 AD, somewhere in there, chronologically speaking, Paul is writing this letter. Now, we're going to talk about a couple of these. We're going to look at Romans. We're going to look at Luke. We're going to look at Acts. We're going to look at Philippians. We're going to come back and just remind ourselves of 1 Timothy, and then we're going to go to 2 John. And the question we're asking ourselves, two questions. Number one, what is the role of women in ministry as we consider these passages? What are the titles or the descriptions that are given to women in ministry as we consider these passages? And we're going to consider these passages not in order of the events as they talk about, but in the order in which they were written. Uh, these books that I've given you, we're looking at Romans first, because Romans was written first. In Romans 16 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul has made it clear that he's hoping to go to uh, visit the church in Rome. Before he goes to Rome, we know from the book of Acts that he's going to actually make his way across to Asia Minor. He's going to meet with the pastors of Ephesus, In the city of Miletus. From there, he's going to sail south to Jerusalem, where, God willing, he's going to celebrate Passover with the church in Jerusalem. He is then going to be taken into custody, arrested. Now, before all of that happens, he writes this letter to the church at Rome. Bear in mind, and this is important, we're talking about biblical theology, we're talking about progressive revelation. As God is revealing these things through the written word, these things are being revealed in a certain order. So he's writing Romans 16.1 before Acts has ever been written, before the account of what happened in Jerusalem when the apostles appointed deacons, before that account was ever written and clarified by the Holy Spirit. Romans 16.1 comes first. Note that Romans sixteen one, the Apostle Paul is again he's stay, saying to the church of Rome from Corinth. I hope to come to you. Here's a letter, dear Paul, dear dear church of Rome, Rome from Paul, and he makes this statement: I commend to you our sister Phoebe, and most of your translations will render this a servant of the church at Cancrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and help her on. And help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, it says servant. Uh, I'm looking around. I see a couple of Greek students here this morning. Oh, they're all sliding down. Oh, that's not me. Servant. Girls, do you know the Greek word for servant? Doulos. See, there's more than one word in the Greek language that can be translated servant. We have our modern English word doula or mid, this idea of doulas or midwives, it comes from this Greek word here, doulas. Is that the word, the ESV says, Phoebe is a servant of the church at Cancria, which is a sister church just across the way from Corinth. Is that the word here? No, it's not, which is why most of your translations will have a little footnote it says there's an alternate translation in the bottom, and it'll be at the bottom of your page, in which it says Phoebe is a deacon or deaconess. The Greek word that is used here is not doulos or doula, in the feminine version. It's diakonos. and more interesting, it is in fact in the masculine. Now, some of you are saying, "Well, what difference does that make?" If you're from Arkansas. Subject and verb does not always have to agree. For us here in Kamloops, when we talk, we will generally say things in such a way that if we have a singular subject, there's going to be a singular verb that goes with that subject. For example, he is going fishing. He, singular, is singular. Now let's make it plural. They are going fishing. If you're from Arkansas, you can say, He are going fishing. Or you might say, they is going fishing. (laughs) We try to stay away from that here in Kamloops, okay? Some of you I've heard... No, I'm just joking, I'm just joking. (laughs) We have this thing in, and it's in every language, subject and verb have to agree in terms of the number, if it's singular or plural. In Greek, they take it a step further. It has to agree not only in subject and number... Generally, it must agree in terms of gender. You'll have female adjectives describing females. You'll have masculine adjectives describing men or males, okay? That rule is not followed here by the Apostle Paul in Romans 16.1. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon, masculine term, from the church at Cancrea. If Paul's intention was to use the word deacon or diakonos in its general sense as that of a waiter or a waitress, someone who waits on tables, we saw that last week, he could have used the female version of that word. There is a female way to make that word, there is a way to make that word female, but he doesn't do that. He uses the masculine, which would indicate He's not talking about a service that she performs. He is clearly talking about perhaps an office that she holds. That would be the most natural reading of that verse. Which means that what Paul is saying, and it makes sense if you look at it, he says, I commend to you. What does that mean? He's going to say, Phoebe, who is a deacon of the church at Cancria, I commend her to you. And there's no doubt about whether this is a man or a woman. The name in and of itself is female, but in case you weren't sure, he says, my sister, which is clearly female. So this is a woman. Phoebe is a woman. She's a deacon, masculine term is used, and she's a servant of the church at Cancria. He says, I commend her to you. What does that mean, to commend? It means to say, I have... A high regard for her, and therefore you ought to regard her as well. He's telling them, pay attention to this lady. This lady here, she is a deacon, and you need to pay attention to her. You need to have a high regard for her because she has served the church at Cancrea with faithfulness. She has served me. She has helped out a lot of us. You need to pay attention to her. When we talk about deacons in the church, These are men who not only serve in the church, but we say we're going to appoint them to a special office within the church because their character and their reputation and the exemplary lifestyle that they lead, we want you to be able to observe that in them. We want you to have regard for that. That's exactly what Paul is saying here in Romans. Now, that's not all that this passage says. There are additional passages Go with me now to Luke. The Apostle Paul and Luke are traveling companions. As they are traveling together around doing all these different missionary journeys, they travel from Corinth to Jerusalem where they celebrate Passover with the Jerusalem church and Paul is arrested and taken into custody. He's eventually trucked up north to uh, Caesarea. He is held by Felix for a period of two years. For the two years that he is held in northern Israel in Caesarea... Luke, most likely, our best guess is that during this time he is compiling the Gospel of Luke. So, Cor- Corinthian, the the church the letter to the Romans was written from Corinth around 56, 57. The Gospel of Luke is now written by Luke's traveling companion, Luke, sometime around 58, somewhere in there, as uh, Paul has been taken ca- uh, captive; he's been taken into custody. Now, look at this. This is Luke. Chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on, this is talking about Jesus, soon afterward, he went on throughout the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve apostles, this is a reference to the apostles, the twelve were with him, and also some women, who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. He's going to name them, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, so someone who's high up in position and standing within Herod's household, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, the word here, provided, guess what that word is? It's diakoneo. That's the verb for to deacon, or to wait, or to serve. Luke is saying here that Jesus in his ministry was served by women who served him out of their own financial means. Is there a verb for serve that is not diakonel? Yes, there is. But Luke chooses this one. And as we consider the gospel of Luke as a whole, we find as we work our way through Luke, Luke brings an incredible amount of attention and focus to the ladies who surrounded Christ. I mean, it starts off with Mary and Elizabeth. There's a lot of discussion there. As you work your way through the Gospels, Luke is careful to point out it was the women who found Jesus at the tomb. I mean, we're all familiar with the woman who anointed Jesus uh, by breaking the alabaster flask on his feet and wiping his feet with her hair. We're, we're familiar with all of these stories, and they're all recorded throughout the Gospel of Luke. And even here in chapter 8, Luke is careful to point out to us, hey, the apostles were with Jesus, but it wasn't just these 12 guys who were with Jesus. There are also a number of women who were deaconing for Jesus, out of their means. That's how we understand that term. We're going to keep on rolling. I'm going to skip past Acts for the sake of time. You're familiar in the Gospel of Acts when they set aside those guys. They were specifically men. But we're going to keep on going. I want you to go now to Philippians. Philippians was written about about 62, 63 A.D. The Apostle Paul has traveled to Jerusalem. He has celebrated Passover with the Jerusalem church. He's been taken into captivity. He spends two years with Felix in Caesarea. He eventually makes that disastrous voyage through the Mediterranean Sea in the middle of winter, gets blown off course, shipwrecks at the island of Malta, eventually makes his way to Rome where he is held under house arrest. And it is from his house and being under house arrest in Rome that he writes this letter sometime around 62- A.D., he writes this letter to the church at Philippi. Notice the greeting, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. By this point, we see clearly, I mean, the first letter that was written was, if you'll recall, Romans, in which the masculine term is used, clearly a reference to an office, And here in Philippians, we see, again, this masculine term is used. This is clearly, by this point, by 62 AD in the first century, a clearly established office within the church. You say, okay, but you don't see anything there in that particular passage about female deacons. That's right, you don't. But now flip with me to chapter 4. Just flip the page, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3. There are some ladies in Philippi, who are having a little bit of a temper tantrum with each other. A little bit of a catfight, you know. They don't get along with each other. Paul's statement there. Now, he's an apostle, right? He is writing scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Could he have just said, hey, ladies, quit your fighting? Yes, absolutely. Notice what he says. I entreat you, Odea, and I entreat Syntyche, both females, to agree in the Lord. Now, right about here, you'd expect him to break it down. Here's your position, and here's your position. Here's where you're being reasonable. Here's where you're being totally unreasonable. Stop being that way. You guys get along. Reconcile, make up. Good to go. Does he do that? No, 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 he doesn't. Look what he says here. Verse 3. Yes, I ask, I ask you also, true companion, help These women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. I mentioned to you before that when we had this discussion on our deacon board, there wasn't a man present, whether pastor or whether deacon, who didn't agree that we'd all been in situations and circumstances where we had to go and address a woman and we all wanted a woman present This is a guess, but I think the Apostle Paul is in the same boat. He says now, he says here, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. Does he call them deaconesses? No, he doesn't. There's no suggestion of that in this particular text. Does he tell them to just settle down, calm down, agree and get along? As a man who has had to mediate sometimes between two ladies, I can tell you that that expression doesn't always work. Just settle down, calm down, and get along. Mm, It's one of those moments where you want to take somebody along, and I have taken along before with me, either my wife, Shanti, I've also had Kyla, Kyla Blindberg go along with me, and I've sat where two ladies are at disputes, at odds with each other, and and it kind of gets away from you, and you're just like, they're kind of, and you're like, eh, uh, you know, and you're not sure what to say because it's it's intense, it's intense. And Kyla or sh- my wife Shanti has said, "Okay, that's enough." And she can be like that because she's a girl. But if I were to be like, "Okay, stop it," you know, they'd be like, "Oh, pastoral abuse, spiritual abuse. We're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna t- say <laughs> you're a man, you're you're being mean to us, you know." And uh, and I'm very sensitive to that. I am. I'm very sensitive to that. You know, the last thing you want, you're trying to help these ladies resolve a dispute, you jump into the mix there, and you're just like, "This is how it is," and then they they. They find common ground, <laughs> and they do reconcile, but for all of the wrong reasons, and now you're the scapegoat, right? You see what I'm getting at there? Okay. So the Apostle Paul, and I don't know this for a fact, but he doesn't mention the true companion, but he makes that term, and I can just tell. It's like, you know, when I'm, when I'm needing a lady to go along with me to get into some dicey situations, I'm like, you know, you are such a good friend. <laughs> I appreciate you so much. And they're like, uh, uh, what, do, what do you need? What are you going?" At? I'm like, "Will you go with me to talk?" And they're like, "Oh, no, I don't know." So I just sort of get that sense. Do I know that for a fact? No, I don't. One thing we do know clearly from the Book of Philippians: this is by 62 A.D. Before an act is about to be written somewhere in here, in which the account of the apostles establishing the office of deacon in Acts chapter 6 is going to be written right around close to approximately the time that this book is written, also probably from Rome. Theophilus was the patron who sponsored Luke in the writing of those two works. He is clearly a Roman. Most likely, Paul writes Luke, uh, Bo, he writes Luke from, from Jerusalem, from Palestine, from Caesarea. And most likely, Acts is written in Rome. Last reference that I want to draw your attention to. We're going to skip over Timothy. I want you to go now to Second John. Second John. We have within the New Testament an apostolic letter written around 90 to 95 AD by the Apostle John while he is ministering in Ephesus. He is writing most likely to a church in Asia Minor from Ephesus, These churches in Asia Minor are churches over which he exercises apostolic authority, and he has an apostolic ministry, and he's writing them. And clearly, this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What we have here is we have a letter in the New Testament written specifically to a lady, to a woman, who we don't really know exactly what her role of ministry is, but it is very obvious that this woman has a significant position of leadership to some extent within this church because the way in which she is leading in terms of her hospitality is creating problems. He says in 2 John 1, verse 1, there's there's no chapters here, it's just one. The elder, this is John writing, to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth and not only I but all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So he's writing to a lady and then a little bit further on in verse 9 he says to her as well as to her children these could possibly be biological children, but most likely these are spiritual children that she has led to the Lord, that she has proclaimed the gospel to. So he says, to you, elect lady, and your children who are walking in the truth, which is another indicator that these are probably people who've come to faith through her ministry. He says in verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching of the Father and the Son, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, why would he feel the need to say that to her? Because obviously, what she is doing is there's a false teacher who's come to town, and as you look at 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, side by side, it's very clear there's a lot of bad stuff going on there. There's a church split that happens as a result of it. And now the apostle John is trying to bring God's word back into the situation, and he writes to this elect lady, he says, listen, listen, When somebody comes who brings false teaching, you don't say hello, you don't say howdy, you don't nod your head and do the kind of what's up kind of thing, you ignore them, you don't greet them, and you don't welcome them into your home. What was she probably doing? She was probably saying, look, you know what? These guys are heretics, but I'm a Christian woman. I love the Lord. I'm going to take care of them. They've traveled here. Yeah, I don't necessarily agree with what they're teaching or with what they're saying, but I tell you what, I'm just going to give them a place to stay tonight, give them a hot meal, and send them on their way. And John says, you can't do that. And why is it that you can't do that? Because if you do that, you're partnering with them in helping them to teach and preach heresy. As she's bringing these guys into her house, even though she may not directly support their teaching, you know what she's doing? All her children, her spiritual children, are observing her extending hospitality to these people. And as a result of watching this woman who has led them to faith, whom they have a high regard for, watching her give hospitality to these false teachers, they are being influenced. she hasn't opened her mouth, she hasn't said one word of anything heretical she has't engaged in any teaching simply by having people in her home and because of the high regard that these that these Christians gave to her, that in and of itself was enough to lead them astray. So we see as we work our way through the New Testament, that the masculine form of the word deacon is absolutely applied to a female who serves the church. We see that in the life and in the ministry of Jesus, a significant portion of his help, I mean his finances, came from women who deaconed, who served him, so that he could go forward and proclaim the gospel. We see this term becomes an official office within the church at Philippi, we see Paul writing to these ladies, and although we can't be certain, it stands to reason he's hoping somebody will step into that mix with these two ladies and help, them, help him to help them to resolve their dispute. And then we also see here by the end of the first century, around ninety ninety five 95 A.D., John, the Apostle John, also addressing this lady who is having a significant spiritual influence within the church. So we come back to 1 Timothy 3, and we need to make a couple of comments by the time that 1st Timothy is written sometime around 63 to 64 it is clear that Paul is familiar with the office of deacon and he has identified Phoebe from Romans chapter 16 and verse 1 as a deacon of the church at Cancria he knows that, he gets that In his discussions with Luke, the letter of Luke by this point, has the gospel of Luke by this point has been written. And Luke has taken pains to show how involved and how invested women were in the ministry of Jesus. And yet we come to 1 Timothy 3, and we read this passage, and we see that when it comes to elders, elders are to be the husbands of one wife. When it comes to deacons, deacons also are to be the husbands of one wife and thrown right here into the mix is this verse, which does not have a possessive pronoun, and in which it could go either way. It could be the women deacons, or it could also be understood the wives of the deacons. It could go either way. What are we to do with this? I'd like to offer to you a modest proposal. Women in this church, and women in every church, they need women that they can look up to. We need in this church women whom we can point to and identify and say, that lady lives a life that is exemplary. That lady has outstanding character. That lady knows her Bible. And if you're a young woman or even just a new believer, And you're looking for someone, a woman, who can speak to you, woman to woman, and help you figure out how to walk with Christ as a woman. We need somebody like that in this church. It is undeniably clear throughout all of the New Testament, there were quite a few of these ladies who did this role. In fact, Paul, writing to Titus, just two books later in chapter 2, he's going to be very explicit. Let the younger women learn from the older women. So this is very, very clearly taught. Should we then, acknowledging that need, should we then appoint female deaconesses in this church? It is my personal belief, given the designation for Phoebe in Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, that that would be an acceptable thing to do. So long as we put one caution on it, whatever role or authority female deacons exercise in this church, it is not an authority over men. say, well, why? Why? What is that all about? Go back to chapter 2. already did this when I preached the sermon on how to dress. Talked about the yoga pants. Let me refresh your memory. (laughs) Makes the statement here in verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Do women in this church need to be taught by other women? Yes. Do the men in this church still have a primary role of leadership? Yes. Do men in this church need to be taught by other men? Yes. But in that passage, there's nothing that says that we can't also have a role of service and a role of teaching for women, to women, under the authority, under the supervision of the elders within the church. Whatever we might say of a female deaconess, we must also say this as well. They are not to be in a position of authority over male deacons. I think that's also clear from the text. It is a position that we could identify within our church, and we could point the ladies in our church to that lady, and we could say she's been tested. The elders have scrutinized her life. They've tested her doctrine. They've looked at her teaching, and you, you can trust this woman. The alternative is this, and I want you to see this clearly as well. In 1 Timothy 3, the Apostle Paul in verse 14 makes the statement, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. His whole point in writing this letter is to say, hey, here's how it needs to be in the church, which means the alternative is this. We could prioritize this passage, which I'm also inclined, either way. You go Romans 16.1, Phoebe's a deacon. You go First Timothy 3, in which Paul does not mention deaconesses. Whichever way you want to go, it doesn't matter to me. But we could prioritize this passage over Romans 16.1, and we could say, you know what? If it was the Spirit of God's intention to establish female deaconesses in the church, this would have been the place where he would have specifically said female deaconesses. And yet, he did not. So we are finding ourselves here with two options. We can just say, here are some ladies in our church who are mature, who are godly, who help in a number of different capacities, whom we would point you to, younger ladies, to learn from and to listen to. That's if we prioritized 1 Timothy 3 over Romans 16.1. Or we could prioritize Romans 16.1 and we could say, hey, that's the more clear passage. Let's go with that. And we could say, Paul allows for female deaconesses. You could give them the title so long as you were very, very clear in the bestowing of that title that it was understood amongst all the congregation that they were in no way in a position of authority over other deacons or other pastors. Either way. Half a dozen of this, six of the other. What is clear to me is that we do desperately need in this church ladies, female teachers who can set an example and teach and encourage all of the ladies in this church. As a pastor, I tend to look, as a man, I tend to look at things dispassionately. I don't get emotionally invested. I don't have the same makeup as a woman. Surprise, surprise, I'm not a woman. And I don't always apply the scriptures with the precision that is necessary to speak specifically to issues that are very important to women. But I do see a need for us as a church, with men taking the lead, to identify and establish women who can lead other women. Because, because. If we don't do it here, the ladies in this church will absolutely turn to someone somewhere, most likely on the internet, whom we don't know, whom we've never heard of, who is going to be teaching falsehood, most likely. And either we are proactive and we work against that, or we just sort of sit back and wash our hands of it and it happens. Jen Hatmaker, Never heard of this lady? She's from Texas. All the good heretics are from Texas. Don't ask me where I'm from, okay? Uh, I never heard of her. She's been ministering in Texas since about... She's been apparently a famous household name since about 2004. That was when I still lived in Texas. I never heard of her. Never heard of her. You notice most of these female teachers... They are familiar with their John Pipers and their Tim Kellers. They, they know their C.S. Lewis's. They're familiar with good theology. And then in addition to that, they can quote you a lot of other female authors. You pull any pastor aside, you say, okay, who's your favorite Christian author? Give me a list of them. They're going to quote you, Tim Keller. They're going to quote you, John Piper. And you say, okay, what about your, fe- your favorite female authors? They're going to be like, uh, yeah, I don't know. And the honest truth is, we're going to be hard-pressed to come up with good female authors teachers. That ought to tell you something right there. Beth Moore, Southern Baptist women's teacher. Started in 1994, Living Proof Ministries. I bet every single woman in this room has probably heard of her. Started out really great. I became familiar with her in 1998. My wife did a Bible study at our church. We weren't married at the time, just so you know. Um, she attended a church, we were still in high school, she attended a church uh, with a ladies group there, was involved in this uh, in this Bible study. Man, solid lady, solid exegesis. Approached the scriptures with a seriousness and a depth that fed my wife's soul. And I praised God. I said, thank you, Lord, for Beth Moore and Living Proof Ministries. Here's the catch. It is not, her ministry, Living Proof Ministries, is not subject to any church authority. She is the CEO. She is in charge, and she decides what she wants to say, when she wants to say it, and she has built a massive following. True fact, when Beth Moore writes a book, it sells usually about twice as many copies as anything John Piper or Tim Keller or John MacArthur writes. Just know that. Here's the problem with Beth Moore. As her ministry has progressed... As the need to become more original and more creative has presented, that temptation has presented itself to her soul. She has wandered down a path of biblical interpretation that is largely experiential. Writing in November, right around the same time I read this article about Jen Hatmaker, she wrote and she made <laughs> this comment to ladies. We've all got this Noah instinct. This drive in all of us ladies to build arcs and then to shut ourselves in with our own kind. Then we shut ourselves further in with our cell phones. Then we get claustrophobic, bored, and we wonder why open a window and watch for a dove with an olive twig. There is life out there. We all have this Noah instinct. God commanded Noah to build an ark and to go into it with his own kind. There were like lots of animals in that ark. Um, We have this drive to isolate ourselves I agree it's called fear of man but Noah was building an ark in obedience to God despite his fear of ridicule and so now we're all looking at Noah as though he's this weird guy who just wanted to isolate himself off from the world and not be around people and it worked out well for him because the flood came and he was saved you see how conflicting and confusing that message is Jen Hatmaker, people love her, people adore her. She comes out and she says, it is biblically okay for homosexual marriage to take place in our society. You've got women in churches all across North America who have listened to her, who have followed her, who have fallen in love with her. She exercises a spiritual influence in their life. She makes this statement. All of a sudden, all the pastors are starting to say, Why are you listening to this woman? And now we have division in our churches because this was left unaddressed for so long. She makes a statement. She isn't accountable to any church authority. And now women in the church are at odds. Half the women are saying, we probably shouldn't listen to this lady anymore. Her teaching is probably suspect. Other women in the church are saying, how dare you say that about Jen Hatmaker? She has impacted my life so deeply, so richly. I will continue to listen to her. National female teachers. Of God's Word should be a point of reference, but within this church, we need somebody we can point to and say, that is a godly woman with wisdom and honor and has lived her life with dignity. My time is gone. That's my modest proposal for us as a church congregation. I want to point out to you a couple of individuals who have done this without the title. I'm thinking, obviously, of individuals like Kyla Blyenberg. I'm thinking of individuals like Jill Ewanition. I told Jill last week, the title of my sermon next week is going to be Jill (laughs) Uannishin. It's true. I didn't put that as the title of my message because I just thought, ah, that's just too weird. But it's true, I, I made that comment to her. She serves in so many different ways in this church. Uh, A couple of Sundays ago, we had a huge snowstorm. Uh, People weren't able to make it out. We didn't have the coffee ready. And John Dykstra and I are sitting back there in the foyer. We're like, we don't have coffee. Where do we keep the coffee? (laughs) Jill, you and would know. And we said, Jill, would you do it? And she, sure enough, knew right where it was. And she was able to serve us in that capacity. She was a deaconess to the deacon that morning. She helped John and myself put the coffee out, get it ready to go. I'm thinking of Lydia McAndrew. She does not care one iota for soundboard or soundboard technology. And yet, because it's a need in our church, she has committed herself to serving in that way to make sure the sound system works. I'm thinking of Ashley Relly. Ashley Relling, who is a teacher in our public education system, who teaches all day, every day, Monday to Friday, and yet, when there was a need in our youth group to teach teenagers, the people she teaches all day, every day, when she wants to get away from that and ha- you know, have sanity time, she said, you know what? We need somebody to teach in our youth group. I will serve. I'm thinking of Dale Dykstra the iron lady in our church who does it all, who has been involved in everything from Sunday school to worship to church treasurer, you name it, she does it. She schedules everything. She's on top of everything. And what's more is with all of these ladies that I've just identified, whether it was Lydia or Kyla or Dale or Jill or Ashley, these are also women that as I have walked with them and as I've gotten to know them, they know their Bible. They know the word of God. And not one of them, not one of them has ever come to me and clamored for a title of deaconess. They have simply said, we will serve our King and our Lord. We will serve this church and recognition doesn't matter. That, whether you give them the title or not, that's what we're talking about. So if you're here and you're wondering who can i go to as a lady in this church for a mature godly woman to guide me and to mentor me take note of those names my time is gone i was going to talk about blue bonnets but i don't have time so we're just going to pray and then we'll be dismissed father we love you we thank you so much for your word to us father as i have attempted to handle the scriptures i have tried my very best lord not to be beholden to church tradition, but to be humble before your word. I see clearly, especially within the grammatical and syntactical relationships within scripture, different ways that perhaps we could address this issue. But above all, Lord, we want to have wisdom and we want to be obedient to your word. We see that it's not explicitly clear in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 11. Not as clear as we would like for it to be at any rate. We just pray, Lord, that your spirit would guide us. And Father, as a leader in this church, and on behalf of all the deacons, oh, oh, most heavenly Father, we do love our sisters. We do want to minister to them. And it is in humility that we recognize as guys, we just don't have all of the tools and the toolbox that are necessary to reach out and to love on our younger sisters. Father, we pray you would raise up and continue to raise up among those ladies here at this church more women who would have a heart for women's ministry and could continue to love and serve all of the ladies and all of the young girls that you bring to this family. Help us, Father, provide for us, and we know that you will according to your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.